We are in Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 17, and we are going to start at verse 14. And today we're going to finish up all the way through chapter 17, and so we're going to finish up this section that we've been doing called Identity Revealed. We've been going through the book of Matthew for a while, and as we kind of take section by section, we name each section something uh, as it has to do with what's going on. And so today uh, we're finishing up, we started in chapter 14, um, where in verse 22, Jesus started kind of uh, revealing his identity, slowly but surely revealing who he was in certain places, in certain ways, as healer, as miracle worker, as provider, um, kind of climaxing, if you will, at 1616, where he says he's the son of the living God. And so we're going to finish up uh, this section in Matthew where he's been slowly and surely revealing himself and his identity. And so um, it's kind of like whenever <coughs> your child goes off to college and you're an empty nester and you're, get, you're putting it off and it's kind of like a sad day, but you're also like, I am glad to be over that section, you know, but still, I loved you so much and it was fun to do that section. So it's kind of a little emotional moment for me. So anyway, um, I'm just being funny, but anyway, but we are finishing up. We're not really funny. I'm not funny, but I'm trying to, anyway, I don't even know what I'm doing. So we're at at chapter 17, verse 14. The point I'm trying to make is we're finishing up Identity Revealed. That's what we're doing. And so um, as we're finishing up Identity Revealed, there's some things I want you to see um, because the second half of chapter 17 is in a major stark contrast to the first half of Identity Revealed. Now, if you weren't here last week, uh, 17, 1 through 12, I'm sorry, 13, is the story of the transfiguration. And this is um, very much uh, an amazing text. This is where Christ takes his inner three out of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John, and goes up on the mountain and in some ways uh, reveals to them what his glorious body it looks like. Not in a fullest sense, but give you an idea. In 17.2 it says, And he was transfigured before them. What does transfigured mean? It says, And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So he did this to himself. If any of us, you ever, are, sh- are shining or glowing or anything, if God did that, that means like somebody did that to you. But what he's doing is, somebody's not doing that to him. He's literally doing it himself, which is just an amazing thing to think. I can't do that. Can you, no one can make themselves glow, which just shows the, the nature of him, that he is God and he's causing this. And so that's the big, huge contrast. There's a, there's a painter, Raphael Sanzio, lived in 1520. He was 37 years old when he died. He was painting a painting when he died called the Transfiguration. And this Transfiguration <coughs> was uh, this, this chapter, verse uh, Matthew 17. And in the, in the painting itself, most of the top of the portion of the painting um, has... Jesus and his three disciples, and it's really bright, and it's, it's, con- it's big, huge portions of light. And in the painting, he's trying to contrast the major portion. On the bottom, if you look at it, um, on the bottom part of the section, there's a big contrast from the top to the bottom, where on the bottom you see nine other disciples. And those nine other disciples, there's big, bright, bathing light here. And then down here you see a little bit of darkness and nine disciples trying to cast demons out of a little boy unsuccessfully. And this is exactly that contrast that the painter is trying to show us is the exact contrast that Matthew's trying to show us here in the book of Ma- uh, uh, chapter 17, where you have Jesus in his transfiguration and the inner three and just seeing an um, amazing mountaintop experience. But just below them, while that's going on, the other nine are trying to do something that's good, but just unsuccessfully. Um, on the mountain, you see the glory with Christ and those who are... <coughs> following Christ, or the, the inner 
the inner three getting to see this mountaintop amazing glory of Christ. On the bottom, down on the mountain where these nine are trying to cast out demons, uh, cast a demon out of a boy, there's confusion in the, in the shadows, if you will, without Jesus. There's a mountaintop experience for some, and there's a valley for others. And I think for us, that's pretty much life, right? So um, it's coming down from the mountain and even this week, as I've been kind of preparing for this particular sermon, I've been, if you will, coming down from the mountain. Last week, I got to preach the transfiguration. And for any pastor, like, it's the transfiguration. That's an exciting, exciting text. Everybody, every part of the Bible is exciting. But when you get to preach the transfiguration, it doesn't happen very often in your life unless you just want to preach it each week, and then it's no fun for y'all. Like, that's an exciting thing. But now we're coming down from the mountain myself, and I'm walking into... Um, a faithless and twisted generation, a, a boy who has um, an epileptic seizures by a demon, and, and we see this, this talk of attacks. And so I'm even kind of been coming down the mountain um, on this sermon this, this past week. And for us, what I'm wanting us to see is, what Matthew's wanting to see is a contrast from Matthew 17, the first half, to the second half. The mountaintop experience where, where everything's great and we're with Christ, but then we're coming down into the valleys of life living in the shadows. These, this life here is but shadows of reality, which is real, which is reality in heaven with Christ. And we're living in this, and this is our day-to-day. So here's what I want us to think about today. Today, in 14 through uh, the rest of the chapter 27, you're going to see four things about Jesus. These four things that you're going to see about Jesus, if you've spent any time in church at all, are, are, are not anything new. They're probably all review things, things that you've heard, things that you've known. However, it's very important, and I think, that we, we see these things, we hear these things, because every one of us, more than likely, is living in the valley more often than we're living on the mountain. Every single one of us are walking around trying to figure out the shadows of life, and we have lots of problems, and very little time are we just experiencing great, like, easiness of life. And so, in the valleys, in the times of life where things are tough, I think that these four things we're going to see about Jesus are tremendously amazing handles to bank on and hold on to and love about him to help us walk through the valley of life, to help us walk through the tough times because that's generally day-to-day where most of us live. And he's given us these things for us to see and love and hold as precious, hold as beautiful, and bank on to know to sustain us through some of the tough times. And so that's what we're going to be doing today is walking through this. So I'm going to pray um, before we jump in. And I would just say, listen, before we pray, if you spend any time in church, if you've been a Christian for a long time, the things I'm going to tell you are things that you've heard, okay? So as we pray, I would just ask that you would join with me, that God would take these things that we've heard and just amaze us again about these things, about who he is, because we need it to walk through life. We have... For many of us, long lives ahead of us, walking with Christ. And we're experiencing times of great sanctification, and then we step back and we see ourselves in sin. And then times of walking with Christ, and then experiencing more sin. We're walking in that valley. We're walking in that contrast that Raphael has painted down in the bottom. We're we're trying our hardest, but nothing seems to be working that well. And we need to bank on Jesus, not on ourselves. So I'm going to pray, and ask that you would pray that the Lord would just amaze you with who He is again today. So let's pray together. Father, most of us are coming down from mountains. Some of us are going up, but a lot of us are living in valleys and in shadows, week to week, day to day, living through life.
Things might not be terribly tough, but we're certainly not um, on these mountaintop experiences like <coughs> the inner three are. Life is tough. We frequently see ourselves in sin, and we don't want it, and we need truth about Jesus to get, take us through this. Lord, please, if anything, don't drive us into ourselves to think about ourselves and, and, and bank on ourselves. That's the last thing we need. We need truth about Jesus to think about him, to bank on him and the things that he has promised and shown that he is. This text that we're looking at is identity revealed. I praise you, God, that you are steadily revealing yourself to us, showing us just how glorious you are. And I pray for all of us that our hearts would be connected, would be reaching out to who you are to take us through these things, to take us through our valleys, not not who we are. Take us outside of ourselves to Jesus this morning. He's our only hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's four things that you're going to see about Jesus today. Um, And I think that although they're not new, none of it's necessarily things you haven't heard, they're still absolutely profound. Absolutely profound. So let's go ahead and and look at it. In verse 14, I'm going to read a section, and then we'll talk through it and read a section, talk through it like that. Verse 14, And when they came to the crowd... A man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So this is the first section. We're going to take them section by section. So that's the first section. Looking at verse 14, we see that Jesus was coming down the mountain. And it says in verse 13, 14, and as they came to a crowd, Mark also tells us this story. And he says basically that whenever he's coming down, there's a crowd and that the other nine disciples are there. And there's a bit of a stir, even though some of the scribes are, are there. And if you remember, just a few weeks ago, the scribes are the ones who are trying to, uh, with, along with the Pharisees and Sadducees, trap Jesus, um, make him in front of everybody, not, not look like he's the Messiah, trying to, trying to do th- wrong things to him. And so all of this is kind of going on, and it says, and they came up to a crowd where the nine um, are trying to help an epileptic child. The nine disciples are trying to help him, cast the demon out of him, but with no success. Uh, the other three are on this mountaintop experience, and they're walking down into the valley here, back to real life, which is where we live every day. Um, and they said... Uh, the man came up to him, kneeling to him. We can understand the desperate, uh, the desperation that this man, this father, would have. And it says, "And the Lord said, Had mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic.' This epileptic, this word ep- epileptic in the Greek is actually not the word epileptic. They didn't know what epilepsy was two thousand years ago. Um, it's literally uh, help my son because he's moonstruck. Um, he's a lunatic. Uh, lun- the word moon it, it com- is uh, lunar, and so he's lunatic there's something that the moon's doing there's a belief in the first century that the moon uh would do something to people that made them do things that were out of control and so he's literally moonstruck or a lunatic they just didn't understand what epilepsy was and so um 
epileptic is a right way to understand it. It's just not the word. Um, and so he's, he's an epileptic. Now, we know that he's not just an epileptic, but he's also possessed by a demon. You can see that in verse 18. It says, And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out. So the demon that was in this boy was causing him to be an epileptic. All right, so that's what's going on. So we can understand the absolute desperation that a father has. You can, this is a young boy, and if you're a dad, you, you can feel this, that every time there's a, there's a deep fear, every time my son is around fire, if he has one of these cases where he goes into epilepsy, he could fall in the fire and burn himself up, and that scares me. And every time he's near water, if he has one, he could fall in the water and he could drown, and that scares me. If I'm not there always, I never know when it's coming, my son could die. There's a, there's a growing understandable, ever-present fear in this man's heart that his son is going to die, either by burning or by drowning or who knows what. And so he's desperate. He needs something to happen. And it says, um, for he often falls, and it says, I brought him to your disciples. And so while Jesus was up on the mountain, there's the nine disciples, the man sees him, and he takes him there. So there's seemingly already uh, a growing word on the street that those guys... Uh, those disciples, they have the power to do some healings. We, we know back in chapter 10, I think it was, where Jesus had already given them some authority and a power to be able to do some of those things, and they even did some of them. And so the word on the street is that Jesus' disciples are men of power and authority and might even be able to heal. And so they're trying to do it. Um, they're trying to get it done. <clears throat> and we see here in verse 16, they brought him to the disciples, and they could not heal them. They were not able to do it. So this seems to be uh, the pattern for the disciples. Uh, because we see that the disciples are, are a little bit distraught that they couldn't do it. There was a time where they could, and so they were able to do it. They're making progress, and all of a sudden, they're not able to do it. And so, progress, then regression. Progress, then regression. And this is the pattern of the disciples as they're walking with Christ. And, not only that, this is your classic two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. Um, I think that for us, as we're looking, as they're learning and they're not doing able to do things perfectly, um, they make some progress and then they regress. This is exactly how our sanctification feels. This is exactly how it feels. Sanctification, if you don't know this big word, um, it just means the process of becoming more and more Christ-like. The process of, of becoming more like Jesus, if you will. Um, whenever you're saved, whenever you put your faith in Christ, you're justified, and that's absolutely certain. And then from that moment till you die, there's this thing called process of sanctification. Now, these things are distinct. They are not the same. They are different. You're justified instantaneously right then, and then from that you grow in this process of holiness. And this is sanctification. And all of us know this, and this is exactly how this is our life. We're, we're moving forward in sanctification. We're seeing sin get killed, and all of a sudden, back. We're moving forward, back. And this is how we, we can all understand that we, we make progress, then we fail. We make progress, then we fail. But as we're doing that, you should not ever despair. Because there's a promise in Philippians 1.6 that every single one of us needs to hold, hold true to and, and let reign in our minds where he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, which is that justification, that declaration that you are innocent, completely forgiven of all your sin that you've done and will do. You are innocent. So he who began that good work in you, declared you justified, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. There's a promise from Jesus that even though you live in progress regression, progress regression, the promise from Jesus is that you are going to be fully sanctified. This whole thing, justification, sanctification, even then your eventual glorification, is called salvation. You're going to be fully saved. 
This is a promise from Jesus. And we need to let the truths of scriptures like that wash over us and remind us as we're going through progress and sanctification. Because when you do that sin and you feel despair, if you just despair so much that you give up and you don't bank on the promises of God, you won't walk with Christ. You won't commune with him as deeply as he wants. We're going to talk about some of that in a little bit. So this is the, uh, the progress that's going on. And now uh, <laughs> we get to verse 17, and there's, there's some amazing language from Jesus, right? This is Jesus, Mr. Love, right? This is Jesus. God is love, and Jesus is God. And here it is where he looks at him, and he says, and Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Like, when we read that, we're just, I'm, I was kind of jarred, like, <laughs> is, did I read that right? This, I don't understand. Like, you get a little bit concerned. You're like, oh, no. Um, how do I answer that if someone asks me? This is Jesus. How do I do that? Well, as I said, the best thing to ask is, um, I don't know, as I said, I don't think I've said this, but here's what I think. Um, there's the best question to start with is who is he speaking to? Who's he talking to? All right, we've already talked about who are some of the major players on the scene. We've got the disciples that are there, the nine that are trying to do things, and I guess the other three are there as well. We've got the crowds, and we also have the scribes. And so I think that this, the best read of this is that he's saying it to all of them and has different connotations for all of them. And I'm going to un- I'm going to help you understand the sharpness of this question in just a second. But let's just understand how this pertains to all three of them. You've got the disciples, and the frustration that he has with them is they've been following him around for three years now, and yet they seem to have what he calls little faith. And he just becomes frustrated that his disciples, the ones he's given authority and power to heal, are not able to do it. And that's, that's a frustration for him. You've also got the crowds that are there. And the reason why he's frustrated with the crowds is because all they want to show you know, we want to put up the tent, somebody play the music, and we have a circus going on, and Jesus comes out and does his magic show, and after that, maybe he'll feed us, and then we can head out of here. That's, that's all the crowds are there for, the show and maybe some food. We've heard he did 5,000 once, maybe we'll do it again. And then we've got the, uh, the scribes who are there, and we know that Jesus has uh, a growing dislike for the scribes, the Pharisees, and Sadducees, because their goal always has been trap Jesus, try to ask questions, try to make him look like he's not who he says he is. And so we've We hear Jesus and all of this that's going on. I mean, he's just coming down from glory being revealed literally by himself, walking down, and here's this going on. And he says right there in uh, verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation. Those are strong words, faithless and twisted. And then Matthew employs or uses the word generation. Now, if you remember, um, and I know you all do, you all are tracking with Matthew, you read it like five times every week, and so you always remember all these key words. In 11.16, that Jesus uses this word. I'm really sarcastic sometimes. In in 11.16, Jesus says, what shall I do with this generation? And so he uses that word generation, and when he says that, he's speaking to it in a negative sense. He's frustrated with all the people there. And so Matthew uses this word again, and showing us that he's frustrated with the people that are here. Now, Here's what's going on as far as the questions and why he says it. And I think this is the best way to understand, because when I first read it, just like you, I'm jarred. I'm like, how long am I going to be with you? Oh, like, is he really saying that? What am I supposed to do with these questions? Um, and he calls them faithless and twisted. Um, the way that, this is the best way I can understand it. And the, the, I didn't come up with this. The commentators read it, and I think it said it, and it's awesome. Um, from our limited perspective, from our limited, finite perspective, this sounds, when we hear it, mean-spirited. But, 
perhaps the better way to consider this is contrast it with what Jesus has experienced from eternity past. Living and dwelling in heaven with his heavenly Father, always having perfect love with the Holy Spirit, connecting them together. And he's always, from eternity past, felt that, all the glories of heaven, experiencing all those things. And then he leaves that, and he comes down, all of its perfections, and he comes down and he experiences frequent unbelief of his own disciples and feels the frustrations from that, and people, and the scribes, and it's just continually always going on. Contrast these experiences right now with the perfections and glories of heaven from eternity past. Then the question makes a little bit more sense for us as we read it. We can understand that the questions that he's asking, the communication that he's trying to point out is, this is just so broken and different from heaven and all the glory in heaven that I've experienced in my, inter- my entire life. So we can see it here, and it doesn't feel quite as sharp for us when he responds this way. Now, we're going to stop right here, and we're going to flip over to Mark 9, because Mark gives us a better, detailed interaction here of how Jesus heals this guy. Um, Mark Matthew just immediately points out uh, that Jesus healed him instantly. You can see in 18, Jesus rebuked him, the demon came out, and the boy was healed instantly. And so he's trying to, Matthew right there, give us this contrast of nine disciples couldn't do it, Jesus shows up, instantly heals him. Contrast, Jesus is the healer. He is uh, revealing himself as the healer. But Mark, actually, in Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 20, is going to give us uh, a little bit more of a detailed interaction between the man, the boy, and what's going on. So I want you all to see this because there's just some beautiful um, interactions that Jesus is having here with them. And, And I think it helps us as believers, whenever we see these questions, but we still see this gentleness of Jesus interacting with this desperate father. So let's look at this, uh, starting at verse 20. We can see in 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Verse 20, it says, And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit, so the demon inside of the boy, saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, so he went into an epileptic seizure in some way, and fell down on the ground, and he rolled about foaming at the mouth, And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. So this has happened in his entire childhood. It has often cast him into the fire, into water to destroy him. So he's trying to kill him. Obviously, we've talked about this. But look at this. This is amazing. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He's come to the right place. He's come to Jesus. Jesus if you can do anything, <laughs> as if he comes to me, you got no hope, right? You come to Jesus, if you can do anything, that is the perfect place to go. And I love Jesus' response. If you can, what do you mean if I can? This is Jesus, of course I can. This, I love that. And he says, all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible. So this is Jesus just pointing out, I can do this, of course I can. And then look at this after this. And this response of the father, I think that all of us can, can understand. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. There's portions of my heart that absolutely believe it. But I will confess that I have portions, portions and parts of my life that I don't believe, that I, I tend to try to do things my own way. And so I believe, and these parts that don't, make those believe as well. Who can identify with that? where there's parts of you where you're following Jesus and you believe, but there's other parts where you don't, you still have questions, you still wonder. And I think the right question or the right declaration of our heart is, God, those places that we know we have unbelief, help us in our unbelief as well. We need to have a complete, solid, not lacking, 100% deep abiding faith in you, Jesus. Like we can all understand that. 
And so, Jesus saw that the crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, never, any, never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. So you can see the crowd, you know, the ones that just want the circus, oh, he's dead, bad show, we're out of here. Um, and, but look at this, this is great. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. The gentleness of Jesus still. Overall, this beautiful picture of Jesus healing a little boy, giving a son back to a father. And so, um, it says there in, in 28, and when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, which is we're going to address over here in verse, uh, in, back in Matthew. So you can flip back over to, um, you can flip back over to Matthew 17. But what I want us to see here is that he was healed instantly. He was healed instantly. Jesus endured in this through all of the unbelief, through all of the crowds and the scribes trying to do things. He endures through it all. He pushes all through it and he still does the miracle. Christ is so patient with them. He's so patient with them. And he is with you. He's so patient with you in your unbelief. So here's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus is the powerful, patient healer. Powerful, because when the man came up and said, if you can do it, if I can, (laughs) of course I can. But patient as well. And listen, I've already said this, but I want to reiterate it. Nothing new here. This is something you already know. Jesus is patient with you. But as you're walking through the valleys and you feel sin happen and you know that you're struggling and you need to know, I wonder if God's really angry at me. Jesus is absolutely patient with you. He's more patient with you than you are probably of yourself. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. Anything that's going on in your life, Jesus is patiently enduring with you. He loves you. He's the powerful, patient healer. Whatever's going on in your life, He's patient. You need to hear that in your valleys. You need to know. I think we all need to realize that. He's so patient with you. That's really good to hear. Now, as we see Jesus being patient with them, we move into verse 19. And so, this is the debrief time, if you will. The disciples, the nine at least, are just distraught. They weren't able to do it, and so... They go into the house, and all of a sudden, they're like, you know, Jesus, you told us back in Matthew chapter 10 that we could do it. That they probably didn't say Matthew 10. And, and for some reason, we can't right now. I don't, I don't understand. So it's, you see in verse um, 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, all right, let's stop here. He's going to give them a reason right here. Now, I didn't read it over in Matthew 9. I meant to. But in Matthew 9, he also gives a reason. And Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark 9, Mark 9's reason is different than Matthew 17. So let me read Mark's to you. I, I meant to read it to you. Um, Mark 9, it says, When the, they entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we cast it out? And in verse 29, 929 of Mark says, And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So Jesus um, says this. Now, he probably, he didn't probably, he said both answers. 
Mark chooses, by divine inspiration, to highlight the fact that the reason why it didn't happen was because of prayer, and your note should say, and fasting. He may have said, and fasting. Through prayer and fasting, this is how it's supposed to happen. Matthew chooses to highlight a different answer through divine inspiration, and he just talks about, right here, um, they, Jesus answered t- back to him, because of your little faith, for I, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, by the way, which is little, okay, just note that, mustard seeds are little, and he says, you have little faith. Little faith moves mountains. So we're going to explain that in just a second because that seems a little bit confusing, right? And he says, um, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. I got the song in my head. Anybody know the song? And it will move, and it will move, and nothing. I'm not going to sing. But I hope it's stuck in your head now because it's been killing me all week. Um, <laughs> it will move from here to there, and nothing will be impossible for you. Like, that's, that's the song. Um, and so he gives him this answer. And so I know it's brutal, um, but... I've got four kids, and they play these songs all the time, which I'm thankful, but they stick in your head, these melodies. Um, And so you've got two answers here of why it doesn't happen. It's debrief time. They want to know why it doesn't happen, why it doesn't happen, that we wanted to do it. This is well-intended. I mean, a boy's got a demon. We want to cast it out. (laughs) Seems great to want to try to do, and we couldn't do it. Why? And so Matthew tells us because of little faith, and Mark tells us because of prayer and fasting. So I want to look at those two and just hopefully pull out for us some applications, okay? Pull out for us some applications. The first one is little faith. And so when we see this word little, we shouldn't think of amount. Although it uses the word little, we think amount. And we think, you know, you just need a more volume of faith. If you had more volume, then that's what could happen. Um, then you could do it. But we have to be careful because... Um, if we go the way of, of some, then we think that the reason why you can't have a miracle or a, or a healing happen in your life is just because your, your faith is so small. And so I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that when he's saying little faith, it pertains to the actual volume, but instead to the amount of faith that you have, whatever it is, what's there, not what's not there, but what is there, this faith, is it healthy or is it sickly? Because of your little faith. The faith that you have, disciples, it's sickly. It's got a fever. It's, it doesn't feel well. It coughs a lot. It's, it's not good. We're not talking about volume. We're talking about what you have. And God, we know from Romans, I think it's Romans 12, assigns measures of faith to each person. Um, so whatever it is, it's sick. And so that's why we would say, just like the, the Father, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to have a stronger faith. I want to have a... a, a strong, healthy faith that, that believes in you. And it's not volume, it's what I have. I want to believe with all my heart. Carson says, D.A. Carson says, the disciples here were treating the authority that God had given them like, a, like magic. You know, I'm going to do some magic and I'm going to hocus pocus and then you're going to get healed. Um, and that's not what we're talking about because um, we're talking about a healthy faith. Now, we're not talking about little faith because he just says, because of your little faith, but little faith can move mountains. <laughs> so, one would think then that they're able to do it. If I can move a mountain, I can cast a demon out. Now, also, um, this isn't like literal move mountains. There's not ever been, in my knowledge, in the last 2,000 years, a Christian literally moving a mountain with faith. Like, we're not talking about you're going to be able to walk out to the AT and just say, mountain, get up and fly out in the ocean. You know, that's not what we're talking about. But what he means by this, it's, it's, it's a proverb. Um, it's not little, but it's proverb he's proverbial saying that's my word um, but he's saying that you are able to overcome great difficulties this is what he's saying if you have strong healthy faith whatever measure it is if you have strong healthy faith you are able to 
in Christ with a, with a deep abiding love in Jesus, able to overcome great difficulties. And he's looking at him and he's saying, your faith is weak. It's little. That's why you didn't do it. When we hear nothing will be impossible for you, again, we're not talking about a, a gospel magic, hocus pocus faith healing kind of thing. We're talking about, in context, the whole book of Matthew has been about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and building the gospel of the kingdom. So nothing will be impossible is predicated on if you have faith. It says in verse 20, if you have faith like, then nothing will be impossible. And this if you have faith, nothing will be impossible for you in the furthering of the kingdom, in the, the accomplishing of the works of the kingdom. So this is what that means for us. If you have a strong, healthy faith in God and you believe that the gospel of the kingdom is a message that I can preach and proclaim to a lost and dying generation, then I can have a deep faith. Nothing will be impossible. For, I can never ever say to a lost and dying generation as I preach the gospel, God can't save them. Nothing's impossible. As you pro- proclaim the gospel to people, you can have a deep abiding knowledge that God can save them. He absolutely can. He will accomplish the works of the kingdom in people. And I think we need to hear that. We don't ever need to approach salvation with people by saying, I really hope God can save them. If I can, that's what Jesus is saying, like in Mark 9. If I can, of course I can. So have a strong faith. And if we could really consider that and all the truths and all the ramifications of that, it should astound us. The second thing, though, is also um, prayer and fasting. One's little faith, the second's prayer and fasting. We saw that in Mark 9. One commentator said it this way when he's thinking about the, the, the prayer and fasting and why they weren't able to do it. This is what he said. This is good. Listen, listen, this is really key. The disciples were already, I mean, already in a place where they no longer were depending prayerfully on God. Already in a place. Can, can you identify with that? Already in a place where they're no longer prayerfully depending on God and the point is that they need to maintain a closer relationship with God they were treating it like their ministry like a method if I do this then God will do this like he has to he said if I do this then God has to do this and that's not how that's not how it works that's not Christian it's I maintain a close relationship with God not in order to get things but because I love him and when I do He could choose to move and work through me to do things. I want him to. But even if he doesn't, I want to maintain a close relationship with him. That's what he's saying. So the reason why he couldn't do it is because they had a weak faith and they were already falling away from their prayerfulness. You want to see great things happen through you? I know you do. But even if you don't, what he's saying is have a deep abiding, strong faith in Him and rely on a deep communion and relationship with God. You have to have those two things. So, the second thing I want you to see about Jesus is this. This is, I think this is so good. Jesus is your source for a strong faith and a deep relationship with God. Nothing new, right? You knew that. But as you're walking through life and it's tough, You need to remember, well, certainly I want those things. I want to have a strong faith. Jesus is your source for a strong faith. Over and over again, he tells us that he gives us our faith, the gift of faith. He's your source. So you don't manufacture that within yourself. You pray like that man. 
I believe, help me with my unbelief. Grow my faith, Jesus. He's the source for me getting strong faith. But also, he is the source for your deep relationship with him. You go to the well of the intimate, deep, deep knowledge of Jesus. You dive into scriptures, just like we saw last week in Second Peter 1, where all the, the communion and depth of knowledge I need to have of Jesus lies in scripture. And so I go to the scriptures each day to commune with him, to have a deep relationship with him, to be in prayer with him, to fast so I can know him deeper. And I, I rely on that in my life. This is what he's telling us. Jesus is your source of a strong faith and deep relationship with God. That's a handle that you need to hold on to as life is tough. Nothing you haven't heard, but I think something that we need to remember, that all of this comes from Jesus, our source, not self-manufactured. Now, we're going to go into verse 22, and this for us is interesting because um, this is the second time in the book of Matthew where Jesus is going to forecast or tell of his coming death. If you remember, he did it in 1621, um, where he said, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Here we're going to see it. It's written in red, so this is direct language. We have a recording of the, of the words he used here in 22. He says, and as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. They were greatly distressed. So here we see um, this forecasting of his death. Now, this is similar to 1622, but it also has a difference. If you notice, it's embedded in that word delivered, and you might not see it in our, in our English Standard Version. Some other versions bring it out. But in 1622, it says the Son of Man is about to be delivered. And so it seems like that feels the same as the previous chapter, but this, the word delivered, means um, delivered over by betrayal. So yes, Jesus is about to be delivered into the hands of them, but the way that it's going to happen, and this is the new piece of information that's different from 1622, where... He's telling his disciples, I'm going to be delivered over to him, but it's going to be by way of betrayal that I'm going to be delivered. And so all of a sudden, their reaction makes more sense. They were greatly distressed, not just of the fact that he's telling them he's going to die, but also the fact that it's going to be by betrayal. And so they're, they're freaking out, wondering if it's them, wondering who, how, and, and when that's going to take place. They don't want him to be betrayed, but he's telling them he's going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He's talking about his death that is coming. And this is a jarring piece of news to the disciples. And they really, as they hear this, have no good comprehension of the resurrection. They can't conceive of the fact that a man's going to die and by himself bring himself back to life. We, we couldn't conceive of that either if we were them. It's just crazy to them. But he's going to tell them this. And as a matter of fact, Mark says, as he tells them, they didn't fully, Mark 9.32 says, when the disciples heard this, they didn't fully understand it, and they were even afraid to ask. <laughs> we don't understand that. We're afraid to ask what that even means. Um, so he's given them this second prediction of his death. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. Now, this is the third thing that I think we need to hold on to um, about Jesus. And this is nothing, again, new but so glorious jesus is the suffering sacrificial servant i think everything's alliterated this time suffering sacrificial servant suffering because he's the one who's willing to go and die 
sacrifice because he's the perfect sacrifice, willingly going, obeying the Father's will all the way, being the perfect sacrifice for us. And he's also a servant, obeying the will of the Father perfectly and doing it. So he's the suffering, sacrificial servant. Now, one thing that I want you to see here is, it says this in 23, and they will kill him. They're going to kill him. Why are they going to kill him? What's the point of killing him? What did he do to be killed? Well, we know that he lived a perfect life, so he did nothing to deserve death. The point of him dying is already told to us back in Matthew one twenty one. He came to save his people from their sins. So what does saving from sins have to do with death? If you don't know uh, much about church or, or about uh, the Christian faith, what I'm going to do right now is tell you what's called the gospel. This, is, this just means good news. The good news of Jesus. What's the good news is the fact that he came and died on a cross, died for our sins, and was raised three days later. But let's understand why. Here's why. Every single one of us deserves death. The Bible is very clear. As soon as you sin, as a matter of fact, you're all born in Adam, and you deserve sin, that moment, physically, you deserve to die right then. I deserve it. You deserve it. We all deserve it. We're already born dead spiritually. We don't know God. We're enemies of God, the Bible says. But we also, at that moment of being born, deserve to die. But here's an amazing thing. You don't. You get to live physically for a life, however long that is. This is the prevenient grace of God, meaning he gives you grace and lets you live. It's not saving grace. It's just He's letting you live. He's letting you experience life. He's letting you get married. He's letting you have children. He's letting you eat nice steaks. These are all just beautiful things that we get to enjoy as people that live on earth. This is just grace, not saving grace. But the right thing is, is the moment we're born, we should die. That's what we deserve. Now, but we don't. But we will. We will eventually die. You know, if Adam and Eve would have never sinned, they would have never have died. They would just continually live on forever and ever. But whenever they sin, death entered the world, and now we all die, every single one of us. Not only will we die physically, but we're dead spiritually. And since we're dead spiritually, sin is in the world, and that's what caused it. And so, therefore, sin has to be dealt with, taken care of. And so, the only person that can take care of it is God. The only person that can right the wrong is someone who's perfect. If I died on the cross, if you died on the cross, it doesn't mean anything. We're not the perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice had to be put forward, and then all of the wrath had to be put on him, and then all of that's taken care of, all the wrath is taken care of, and all of it has been appeased, and therefore now we don't have to die. We'll still die physically, but spiritually, we can be made alive if we believe what Jesus has done for us. And we say, since the perfect sacrifice was put on the cross for me, I want to put all my faith in his work and all of his righteousness, all of his perfections, the fact that he never sinned, will be then given to me and all of my sin will be given to him and that's why he died. And now, in God's eyes, I'm counted completely forgiven. Not only am I counted completely forgiven, I will now get to live in heaven with Jesus eternally, forever. This is the good news and he's telling his disciples this. I think that we all need to be reminded of that every day. That we have been, if you're in Christ, forgiven for every sin you've ever done and every sin you'll ever do. All of it was put on Jesus, and now you walk in forgiveness. 
you walk in complete innocence. You walk in perfection. And so as you're walking through the valley and you sin, you remind yourself of the gospel. God has declared me righteous. Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are never, ever going to experience condemnation from God if you're a son or daughter. That doesn't exist. It's always come Enjoy fellowship with me. There's never a moment, if you're a son or daughter, where he hasn't already forgiven you for that sin and inviting you into fellowship. That, oh man, that's such good news. He's rescued us for those who are in Christ. So here's the question. I think if you're not in Christ, you'd be asking, how can I have that for me? That sounds great. Forgiveness, experience of Jesus, knowing Jesus, getting to be forgiven by him and getting to know the person that gave his life for me, that's exactly what I want. Please tell me how to do that. The Bible is so straightforward. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, this is what he says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It it is a simple message. That doesn't mean it's simplistic. It's very profound and deep in all of its intricacies. But it's a simple message. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you say, Jesus, you call the shots in my life now. You're the Lord. Everything that's with my life is yours now. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I literally believe that that was the case, that he died on the cross for my sins, all of his righteousness given to me, all of my sins, past, present, future, all of them put on him, and everything was dealt with. You will be saved. For it's with the heart that one believes and is justified. Justification, this declaration of God of innocence. It's with the heart that that happens. And with the mouth that one confesses that they're a sinner. And, one, and with the mouth that one is saved. And it even goes on to say, right after that, two verses later. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not everyone will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you don't know Jesus, you can know Jesus today with absolute certainty. You can be saved if you call upon the name of the Lord, believe in your, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is great news if you don't know Jesus. This morning, right now, your eternity can change. And for those of you that are in Christ Jesus, we need to be reminded of that as we're walking through the shadows. Every sin, every sin paid for. And that doesn't mean, oh, since it's paid for, I can just do whatever I want. No, that's not how Christians respond. Since it's paid for, I want to, out of worship and love for him, hold true to what I've already attained. He's called me completely innocent. He's called me completely forgiven. That's the way I want to live then. I'm going to sin less now that I'm walking with Christ, out of love and honor and respect and worship for him. And when you slip... And when you sin, you return back to that great gospel truth. No condemnation. And that's how you walk through the shadows. That's how you walk through this valley. Continually banking on the gospel, the good news. It's the gospel that saves that you come to Jesus. And it's that same gospel that you walk through your entire life. You come to Jesus believing and you continue with Jesus believing. And what he's done for you. Oh, so good. Amen. I love that. Oh, talk to me some more. I love it. All right. Um, 
Now we're going to go into this next phrase, uh, next section. And this is, this is pretty interesting. This particular part here in verse 24 is only in Matthew. Um, it says in verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half shekel tax went up. So he's talking about taxes. And so why would Matthew be the only guy that wants to talk about taxes? He, his profession was what? Yeah, one of you's with me. Awesome. You're awake. The rest of you, wake up. Come on. So he's a tax collector. So Jesus, I'm sorry, Matthew um, takes a little liberty here, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mark, Luke, and uh, John don't want to write about it. Matthew's like, you know, I'm a tax collector. I understand this. I'm going to talk about taxes. Now, this is going to Capernaum, and he's taking up the half shekel tax. My version, old ESV, says half shekel. Your new ESVs probably say uh, two drachma. Um, basically, this just, just means, this is what is going on here. Um, the half shekel or two drachma tax is the tax that every Jewish male between the ages of 20 to 50 had to pay. Um, they had to pay it to the tabernacle, and when they paid it, it continued on the tabernacle services, basically. This is, uh, if you want to know the text, Exodus 30, 11 through 16 is the, is the text where this was kind of instituted. And what this would happen is whenever they would pay it, um, it was a half shekel. And whenever, they, they didn't have half shekels, so they had one, so two guys would come in and pay it together, and those two were covered. Um, it started in Exodus 30, more than likely just being something that you had to pay once in your life. But tradition kind of brought it into this weird thing where it seems like, this is what commentators are saying, um, by the time Jesus, you know, was, was living, uh, that all the people were paying it annually instead of just once in their life from 20 to 50. We don't know. What we don't know is... Um, if Jesus had paid it just once, or if he had never paid it, or if he had paid it last year and didn't pay it this year, we didn't know Jesus or Peter's paying habits of the, of the tax. But what we do know is this. This particular year, Jesus hadn't paid it. Maybe he had before, but this particular year he had not. Maybe he had never paid it. We don't know. But all we know is this particular time, he hadn't. So we're going to go into uh, here, and again, um, <laughs> Peter... You know, it's just Peter. Here he is. He's going he's gonna to blurt something out. He's going to get it wrong. And so I'm beginning to wonder. Like, I'm just, this is just curiosity. I'm beginning to wonder if Peter is just thoughtless and really just one of the most uncareful spokesmen or if Matthew just doesn't like Peter and he wants to take as many opportunities to try to make Peter look silly. Like, I'm trying to figure out... Um, because there's just multiple occasions where Peter's wrong, and Matthew's like, yeah, I remember that one. Ha ha, Peter. And if you know, like Mark, I don't know if you know this, but Mark's gospel, um, Mark got his writings for his gospel from Peter, and so, like, Mark leaves this out. You know, he's like, uh, Peter's like, yeah, forget that story. I forgot that one. So Mark, don't write this part. Um, but Matthew, you know, he was there. He wants to write it. Luke and John don't write it. I don't know why. But anyway, um, so here to 24, and so they came to Capernaum. The collectors, notice it's the collectors that were wanting to take it up. Not the scribes, not the Pharisees, but the collectors, just simple men. Their job was to take it up. Um, it's not a Roman tax, it's a tabernacle tax. It's a, it's a religious tax. Went up to Peter and they said, does your teacher not pay the tax? We can already see the, the respect that these collectors had for Jesus. They wouldn't go to Jesus. They came up to Peter and wanted to ask Peter because Jesus is the teacher. I mean, this is many years, a couple years into the ministry, doing all kinds of stuff, revealing himself as healer and provider and doing all kinds of crazy miracles. So they go up to Peter. Does he not pay the tax? Um, in other words, does he? And Peter says, yes. Um, now, more than likely he hasn't. And we're going to see that that's the case from the response that happens. And when they came into the house, Jesus spoke to him. So here we see Peter just throws it out. Of course he does. Yes. Um, 
but they go into the house. Whenever I was uh, working at this camp called Camp McCall, 95, 96, 97 of 1999, um, they had these things called cooler talks where there's this big, huge, like massive walk-in refrigerator and you could go in there and you could shut the door and it opened, thank goodness. But when you got in there, it was so airtight and like you could, you could yell at the top of your lungs and nobody could hear you. And so one of the summers, there was only two cooler talks given and I got both of them. Um, and so I deserved them. But What's happening here is, 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 a, is a sort of uh, Jesus hearing that whole conversation and say, Peter, cooler talk time. Come on, buddy. We've got to straighten this out again. So he takes him over there, and it's time for a, you know, a cooler talk where Jesus takes Peter aside here, and he says, uh, when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, all right, Peter, got to have a chat. Simon, calls him Simon. Um, who do you think, Simon? Now, what, the point of this cooler talk is this. Jesus is wanting to do with Peter some Christology. All right? That just means the study of Christ. He's wanting him to understand, Peter, I, I, I'm wanting you to get an even bigger picture of who I am. I'm Jesus Christ. Christ meaning Messiah. Christ isn't my last name. I'm Jesus Christ, the, the Christ, the Messiah. And I want to do some Christology with you so you understand who I am. Now, what's going on in the first century is, anytime a tax had been thrown out by a king, whenever that happened, the son of the king was exempt from it. The, the king would tax everybody. Everybody else had to pay it. But the son didn't because he's wanting to collect everybody's money for the son. Why tax the son? <laughs> the son's exempt from those taxes. Everybody else pays it. But the son of the king is exempt from taxes. You see where we're going here? He pulls him to the side and he says, Simon, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And Peter says, from others. Jesus is trying to help him see. Um, I'm the son of God. I'm exempt from taxes, especially the tabernacle tax. The tabernacle is where the son, where the God dwells. I'm the son of God. I'm exempt from that. I want you to see, Peter, that I am Christ, the king, the one who doesn't have to pay these things. I am God himself. He's wanting to help Peter see that. And so Peter's like, yeah, he pays it. You just, you just got that wrong, Peter, because I'm God, and I'm exempt from that, and I want you to see that. So here he says, um, from others, and then Jesus said to him, "Then the sons are free. I'm the son of God, the King. I'm free from this tax. I don't have to pay it." So he's helping him see that he is, he is God Himself. Now, here's where it gets just so awesome, because Jesus is so kind, so gentle, so amazingly humble, so much. He doesn't have to be, but he's so others thinking. Look at this in 27. However, not to give offense to them. Who's the them? Back over to 24, the collectors. The collectors, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea, cast a hook, take up the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that. Notice it's a shekel. It's a half shekel tax, but there's going to be a full shekel. Because I'm not only going to pay my fee, but I'm also going to pay yours too, Peter. And he says, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And the only reason he does that is to not give offense. So here we see Jesus, not um, under obligation to pay it, but he's working for something greater. He could easily just say, not going to pay it, sorry. And the collectors can walk away. Well, man, that's so weird. Why would he do that? Why would he not pay it? He's under obligation to pay it. He's supposed to pay it. They don't know. But Jesus, not to give offense, wanting to break down any barriers 
working for something greater. He's namely working for the salvation of men. Paul addresses this very kind of situation, not, not the ta- temple tax, but this mindset of wanting to remove offense. Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians 9, and this is the way he says it. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, but we endure anything rather than, we endure anything, we let anything come to us rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I don't want to give offense. I want to remove every offense and every barrier so that people will come to know Christ. People will be saved. And so Paul, if you read the first Corinthians, uh, first Corinthians chapter 8, you can just see just a whole chapter of Paul explaining that it's because of love that he does this. Not everybody's as wise as you. I want to remove every single stumbling block. I don't want to cause an offense for a brother that Christ died for and Christ loved. I am not against Christ. I don't want to sin against Christ. I want to love my brother. I want to exercise extreme love. And if this particular thing causes my brother to not see Jesus or it's a stumbling block, I'll remove it for the rest of my life. I'm willing to remove all offenses and take away every single obstacle so that someone can come to know Christ. And this is exactly the posture that Jesus has. And he longs for us to have a deep love for our fellow brothers that, and sisters that cares for them so much. It looks out for them and not ourselves that we would want to remove all of our wants, needs, and desires if they are obstacles in the way of them meeting Jesus. We are supposed to be loving like Christ so that they can meet Jesus. And there's tons of examples I could give. I'm not going to get into them. But let me just say this. Um, if that sounds too difficult for you, no way. I'm not doing that. Um, if your reaction is, well, they just need to get stronger, they just need to get over that, um, then there's a couple, two things I want to say that are just really obvious. Number one, you're just really immature. <laughs> you're just really, really immature. And you're selfish. And you have a long way to grow in Christ. If your posture is, I don't want to remove offenses, but let them stay up there so they can get over it. The second thing is, it'd be hard for me to see how you really love your brother and sister. That's what we're called to do. We're we're called not not only to be mature, but also to be loving. So obstacles that are in the way of believers growing in Christ or unbelievers meeting Jesus, we should, just like Christ, we're not obligated, but in order not to give offense, we want to remove them. We don't want to have a long way to grow in our love for others. We want to continually push ourselves to love others well and be mature. And you should note here the amazing humility of Christ. Just as he predicted his passion, he's showing himself now to be the son of God. But even in all that, in humility, he sees the value of not needlessly causing offense and he pays the temple tax anyway. Pays it anyway. Now, here's what's even more awesome. Did you see how it got paid? Peter, run out to the water. There's a fish. Throw a hook. Um, you're going to catch that fish. It's going to have a full shekel in it. Take that out of his mouth. Go pay it. We just see the amazing sovereignty of Jesus over all creation and everything. I don't know how it got there. If it just appeared in the fish's mouth or, you know, three years ago, Jesus sovereignly had a, you know, a guy stumble and drop it in the water and the fish hold it in his mouth for whoever knows how long. And Peter, I mean, who knows how it happens? I don't know. But it was there and it happened, which just shows us the amazing sovereignty completely in control ruling and reigning over everything in creation of jesus and i think we need to hear that even in the midst of this past week's events in colorado we need to have an indomitable 
understanding that Jesus is completely sovereign over all things, and we don't understand the circumstances, we don't know why things are going and why they happen, but what we can bank on is that Jesus is in control of this, and he brings everything out for his good, although we might not ultimately understand it. He is absolutely working in that. Where was Jesus? He was right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of it. He is sovereign over everything. And this is just another illustration that shows us his sovereignty. The miracle payment. This isn't some illusion. This isn't some David Blaine trick where some guy's down in the water with a scuba gear and sticking it in the fish's mouth. This is Jesus, creator, sovereign and ruler of the universe, causing everything to happen. And we don't always understand it. But he does it. And this is where, oh man, I've been waiting for this whole sermon to get to this. This is so good. Look at this. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. For me and for yourself. So you're thinking, okay, this is Jesus foreshadowing, in some senses, a payment that he's making on behalf of others. Listen to this. This is Spurgeon. This, this is so good. If you don't read Charles Spurgeon, you've got to go read Charles Spurgeon. A hundred years ago, as a pastor in England, he's amazing. This is what he says. The obvious moral lesson is pay rather than cause offense. We've already talked about it. The obvious lesson is don't cause obstacles for people to meet Jesus. Love them. Be mature. But this is the other part. He says that's the obvious moral lesson. But this is where it gets really good. Far greater and deeper truths lie slumbering down below. I love his language. They are such as these. Here are the far greater truths than just don't give offense. The glorious freedom of the Son, His coming under tribute for our sakes, and the clearance of Himself and us by the one payment which He Himself provided. The one payment on the cross, which He freely did, that payment frees not just him but peter and in turn that payment on the cross is a payment not just for some people but for all of those people that put their faith in him this is what he says one piece of money paid for jesus and peter thus we see that his people are joined with him in one redemption he bore on the tree the sentence for me and now both him and the sinner are free it's just a it's a um poem but what he's saying is that since he bore the penalty on the cross that payment that he made just like it, this payment that he made extended to Peter, that payment that he made on the cross extends to every single one of us. So here's the fourth thing. As you're going through the shadows, as you're going through life, here's the fourth handle that we have to hold on to and bank on about our king. He is the humble, authoritative king. He's humble because he loves others. He doesn't exercise freedoms in front of brothers and sisters. He doesn't exercise freedoms in front of unbelievers. He doesn't want to hinder them. He doesn't want to keep them from the gospel. He removes all obstacles so that they will. Andy Stanley says something like this. Do I want to make a point or do I want to make a difference? If I want to make a point, I'm just going to keep that obstacle there because I can exercise my freedom there. But if I want to make a difference, I'm going to remove it. I want to make a difference. And that's the first one. That's why he's humble. He absolutely did not have to do it, but he did. He paid it anyway. But he's not just humble. He's the authoritative king. He was not obligated to pay for my sin on the tree. He was not obligated to pay for your sin on the cross. But we, his people, by his death on the cross, 
by his payment, receive from him redemption. We receive from him complete forgiveness. He's the authoritative king. Ruler and reigner and sustainer of all and willingly gives himself up. Throughout this series we've been doing, Identity Revealed, he's revealed himself in lots of ways. Listen to these ways. Provider, miracle worker, patient healer, the Christ, the Son of God, the source of strength, the glorious Lord, the humble King, the Messiah. Those are awesome, awesome things for us to hold on to as you're walking through life. Listen to them. You're walking daily through life, struggling through sanctification. Your faith is waning. You don't know if you should share the gospel. He is these things. He is the provider. He is the miracle worker. He is the patient healer. He's the Christ. He is the son of God, the son of the living God. He is the source of all your strength. He is the glorious Lord where he transfigured himself. He is the humble king. He is the Messiah. He's worthy of your worship. And now we're going to go into a time of response here where you've got some space. You've got some space to respond. You've got time to consider these things that he is and respond in worship and go out and respond in worship with your life. Three or four songs here. Sent. Sit right here. Think, pray. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead you. However, these truths are hitting you. You're going to go back out into the shadows. You're going to go back out into the grind of life. Let these true things about Jesus be your anchor. You don't need information about you as much as you need information about Jesus to make it through life. Bank on these things. Hope in Him. And listen, if you don't know Jesus, I just invite you to come to know Him today. Find me. Find the person you came with. I want to talk you through and tell you how Romans 10, 9 and 10 is the verse that you need to hear. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. We're going to have a time of response and just consider all these things that we've learned about Christ over this time. Respond and worship to him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. God, I pray that you would be with us now as we worship that even though we might be um, feeling distractions of people or hunger or, or things or things we got to do or places we got to go, we would stop and just pause, consider who you are, dwell in your presence, enjoy your presence, feel the Spirit's power, remind us of who you are right now. Be with us as we worship, God. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.